Welcome to the Kosher Conversation, a Stark Hay Media Production. I'm your host, Hananya Jacobson, at Stark Hay Studios in Pikesville, Maryland. Today, we continue our series on kosher meat production with Rabbi Tzvi Shal Goldberg, who will tell us all about the process of making animals kosher. Rabbi Goldberg is a Stark Hay Kashrus administrator living in Flatbush, New York, where he is also the second generation Rav Machshir of the Vada Flatbush. Among his many duties, Rabbi Goldberg is one of Rabbi Heinemann's primary auditors of Shechita and travels to slaughterhouses worldwide to inspect their operations, often working 18-hour days to ensure that kosher standards are being met. Let's join Rabbi Goldberg now as he tells us how he entered the world of kashras. I started out in kashras quite a number of years ago. I was working for my father, who was at the time the Rabbi Machsher for the Vada Kashras of Flapush. Uh, while I was learning in Kail, I started working part-time for him at the VAD. And from there, it has led to a full-time job of working in Kashrus. Mm-hmm. You've been doing Kashrus full-time. You're still associated with the VAD of Flatbush, correct? I am. After my father, Zacharyan of Rachel, was Nifter, the Rabbonim asked me to take over his position as the Rabbi Machsher of the VAD of Flatbush, and I do that as well. Okay, uh, you mentioned one of the things that you do for us is you're involved with a lot of the shechitas that we supervise. You do a lot of traveling for that to approve the shechitas. So what was your first experience in shechita? My first experience with shechita was going with my father, Zechariah of Rocha, to the slaughterhouse in Baltimore, J.W. Truth, where Heinemann has been going as the Star K representative to audit the Shechita on a weekly basis for many, many decades. And I went with my father and a group of Rabbanim from the New York area who went to observe and see the Shechita. And we took a tour of the slaughterhouse uh, led by Rav Heinemann and Rabbi Kurtzfeld was with us as well. Mm-hmm. How long ago was this about? I'd say it was roughly 20 years ago. At some point you started doing shechita yourself? Uh, so at the time I was interested, uh, my father Zechariah Rachel would go around the country to review the various shechitas that the Vad was accepting. Uh, together with the Star K, Rav Heinemann and Shmuel Heinemann, um, the Together, there was uh, a group that went to make sure that the standards were acceptable. And my father expressed interest in having me join that group of Rabbanim that were traveling to see the various shechitas. The problem was was that everybody else in that group had uh, tremendous experience when it came to shechita, and I had none. So my father said, that's not a big deal. We're going to get you experience. Uh, Little did I know what that actually meant. And uh, on that day that I mentioned earlier was the first step in that direction towards me uh, actually becoming a shaykhid, a baidik, and a menaker. Quite a long journey and difficult one. And from that day on was the first step of many towards that process. So can you tell me a bit about that long, difficult, complicated journey? So learning shechita is actually a complicated feat to accomplish. Learning the halacha is relatively easy. I was learning in Kail at that time. Farm that are used by the shachtim, whether it's Beis David or Simlachadasha or Shulchan Aruch, 
are are on the shelves. You pick them up and you learn them like any other mikutsaya. Uh, the complicated part comes to what, when you want to actually get hands-on experience, which is absolutely necessary because in order to become a shaykhit or baidik or a manakar, there's only one way to do it, and that's to pick up uh, a knife or a reya, a lung, and to learn. And in order to do that, you have to be in a slaughterhouse, which there aren't many of, and there certainly aren't many slaughterhouses that are interested in having Talmidim come in and review what what's going on and take the time to teach somebody new what's happening. In order to do that, you have to have a very good in, uh, which Bar Hashem I did, and uh, that's that's really how how you have to go about it. You have to have somebody who's willing to take you under their under their wing and bring you into their slaughterhouse and give you the time and effort to teach it to you. So, how do you ever get new shechtim? Um, that is a real challenge. Uh, many slaughterhouses, as I mentioned, are not interested in it. However. It's a business, so when it comes down to it, as the businesses need more shachtim, at a certain point, they have no choice but to open their doors and allow us to bring in Hamidim and to train them on their kill floors and on their processing floors. And, you know, whether that entails uh, us slowing them down or perhaps, you know, as, as a Talmud is learning, there is obviously a higher tendency for them to make nevelas during shechito. And they learn to tolerate that as, as any other training process that happens in their facility. Mm-hmm. So your training happened at Truth or in New York Air Base? Part of my training happened at Truth. I spent a very long time learning the halachas, like anybody else who would want to uh, get involved. I did that in the trail that I was learning in at the time. And I spent a lot of time with Ramesha Yerman, who is actually one of our shachtim, and he was kind enough to take a lot of time and and work with me on the chalafim and on the stones. Uh, he's an expert knife maker. He actually makes his own chalafim that he sells, very uh, popular within the industry. And we spent much time in his basement in Flatbush going over all of the various techniques that are involved in stelling a chalaf and that entire process. And then I spent a lot of time in JW Truth in Baltimore with uh, Rav Heinem and Shachtim, uh, Rav Gershon Wilner and Rav Shimon Chatzkelson. And then I had this chus to go to the small, smallest slaughterhouse in Baltimore, uh, which is uh, Rupersberger. And over there, the Shaykhit that I worked with was Rabbi Mati Abramson, who was phenomenal, who also happens to make chalafim. Uh, and uh, that's where I learned mostly dakas. And uh, and I spent quite a bit of time with him, showing me some of, some of the aspects of badika that are harder to, to get at a larger slaughterhouse because Rupersberger is uh, quite a bit smaller, much less going on at any given moment. Mm-hmm. You said that you got a lot of your experience about Dakas over there. So how's that different than Gassos? Like what with that? Aside from the obvious that they're much smaller than steers, the entire process is typically uh, easier because they're easier to handle 
and uh, there's less there's less going on. One of the big differences between the shechita of lamb, let's say, versus steers is that the lamb have a lot of wool on them, and in order to shech them, the makam shechita has to be shaved. That is the proper way of doing it. Uh, otherwise, in the wool, very often there rocks, pebbles, and dirt that accumulate, and uh, those tend to mess up the chalif. Uh, that happens wool. There you could also present other issues. We require from our shechitas, part of my shechitas, that everything is, uh, all the lamb is shaved, and if it's not, then typically speaking, we will not shecht it for kosher. We'll have the plant kill it. Uh, although, you know, if there's, you know, a very small amount of, of uh, wool on it, you know, half an inch, whatever, that might be an inch, uh, and the shaykhit feels that he can shecht it, then it's not uh, not going to be problematic uh, for for his chalif, then we leave that up to our shaykhit to determine whether or not it can be done. But as a rule of thumb, and in 99.9% of the cases, all of our lamb come in shaven to avoid this problem. Some of the other, some of the other notable differences is that by by gases, uh, when we make uh, bedikas chutz, we have a full table set up, and there's air to inflate the lungs and water used to check any areas on the lung where we removed little rerum from, little adhesions from. By lamb, there is no uh, adhesions that we removed, so we don't have uh, a table set up with the air and the water. We have air because sometimes the lungs are have, have a tzamk on them and we need to see if it inflates, but there is no removal of adhesions, which is one of the big processes that happen by gases that do not happen by dacas. I'd like to talk about the badika a little bit more in depth in a minute, but before we get to that, tell me about the maiseshchita itself. What's What are you careful about? What are you doing? What's the intent? So as the shaykhid approaches the behemoth to shechit, he has to keep in mind several things. Um, the most important is what he's trying to accomplish. And that is kosher shechita. So firstly, he wants to make sure that the behemoth is positioned in whatever device is holding the head and neck properly. So if the behemoth is put in at an angle or uh, too far in or too too not in enough into the machine that holds the head and neck, that needs to be adjusted because if he is not working in the area that he needs to be working in, then he very well may end up making a hagramo, which is a miscut, which means that he cut in the wrong area that is above or below the um and once he knows that he is working within the proper area where he can get it make a nice shita that he has to make sure that the behemoth's neck is clean so you mentioned before before when it comes to uh lamb very often there are uh pebbles and and dirt uh sometimes wood chips that are in the <clears throat> that are in the wool make sure that that is not where the chalif is going to be going and cutting because that will damage the chalif, which could lead to a pagima, which would 
further uh, make the animal not kosher if it is found that it has a begima after the shechita. When it comes to beef, you have that also. Very often when you're dealing with winter cattle, depending on where your cattle is coming from, you could have tons of mud all over the behemoth. And when the animal bends down to eat, it could be in a very dirty environment. Uh, so we have people hosing down the behemoths in the necks and scraping the necks with these these little combs to clean them off so that when the chalf is, is doing its job, uh, it doesn't pick up any pegimas from the dirt or the schmutz that is on the neck of the animal. And then finally, what he has to do is that the sheikh needs to see where he is going to start his maishashchita and end his maishashchita. He has to decide the path of the chalif as he's going to guide it along the neck of the animal, depending on the angle of the behemoth and the angle that the sheikh cuts on, like any other cut, will determine how the end product looks. And you want to make sure that you're getting all the, the vridin, aside from getting the con and the veshit, which is necessary to make a proper shechita, you also want to make sure that you're getting the vridin so that the behemoth bleeds out. Rav Heinemann is a very makbid that our shachtim make a shechita mefuras, which means a wide shechita. And by definition, when doing so, uh, you get not only the Khan and the Veshet, but all the surrounding veins and arteries, and the behemoth bleeds out very quickly. This this makes it a much quicker process versus some some that make a much smaller shechita, and they just get the Khan and the Veshet that very often leave veins intact and arteries intact, and the behemoth does not bleed out and go unconscious as quickly when that happens. I see, but it would still be technically a kosher shechita then, but it's not. But it's a much longer process. Correct. It would still, as long as the kan and the veshet are shechted properly in the right area, uh, it would still be a kosher shechita. But Rav wants that uh, our shach to make the shechita mufaras, so it bleeds out quicker, and uh, the behemoth goes unconscious much quicker than if you don't make a shechita mufaras. Is that harder to do? Is that harder to do? It's a great question. The answer is, is that it is. It takes much. A uh, much more skilled person uh, who's been trained to do that to do that correctly. Because when you make a mishchit mufras, you end up going higher up, closer towards the base of the ear, and you're already within range of being able to make a hagrama of a miskat of being going above the tabasa gadayla into the chiti area, which would make a shaila of whether or not you you, you made a hagrama. Many shachtim try to avoid doing that. Uh, because your margin of error becomes that much less. Uh, but, you know, an experienced sheikh who is trained correctly, who does it day in and day out, shouldn't have a problem with it. And on the rare occasion where they make a hagramo, they know how to tell that they did, and uh, they'll follow whatever procedures are in place to make sure that that behemoth gets marked as a novella and does not end up kosher. All right. So when you're going to inspect a new shechita for the star K or the Vlada Flatbush, if you still do that. So one of the things you're looking for is to make sure that all the shechitim there know how to do this. So that is definitely something that we we keep an eye out for. Uh, it's not a ma'akev. It's not something that we 
would not use a shaykhid for if they do not do it. However, we certainly encourage the shachtim to abide by that. It's not always possible, depending on the piece of equipment that's holding the behemo. Uh, it's not always possible to make um, a shechitim furas, but in most cases, um, it is possible, and we do encourage a shaykh to do it. However, it's important to note that if we end up taking a shaykh that's not comfortable with it, the shaykh has to be comfortable with the job. That means the shaykh has to be comfortable with his surroundings. The shaykh has to be comfortable with the positioning of the sink that he uses for sharpening his chalf and washing off his chalf and his, and his hands in between shechitas. He has to be comfortable with the positioning of the behemoth. And if... So all of these things that we as Rabbanim and, and Rav Hainim have set forward for us as, as our lichat uh, chilas, there also has to be a shikl hadas when it comes to each factory um, and each shaykhit to make sure that it's a practical, uh, there's a practical consideration to the shaykhit's ability and comfortability. If the shaykhit is not comfortable doing something, then we may have to adjust something to, to get us there. Mm-hmm. Uh, just kind of parenthetically, when you're when you go and inspect the shechita, is every shechit at every shechita approved? So does that mean you're you're you've gone through every shechit, seen every shechit shecht? So there are two there are two types of shechitas that we that we review. There's a shechita that we certify, and we give a hechsheron. There's a star K on the box of meat. Uh, and when we have a shechita like that, yes, every single shechit, every single boidik, every single manaka, every single mashgiach that's working there would have been reviewed by us and uh, approved by us. When we go to inspect a shechita for acceptance into star K establishments, that is something that is different. We do not necessarily approve every single shechit. We'll go down. Um, and make an, an audit of the facility that we're at, uh, which is under a different hashgacha, and we will review it. If there's a shaykh that we have a problem with, that would lead to conversations with, with their avamachshir. We would have to work something out. But we are not makbid to have gone and reviewed every single shaykh. We're going down uh, to see the overall operation, and to get an overall comfortability with what's going on. But that does not mean that every single shaykhet uh, that works for that other hashgacha would be reviewed and approved directly by us. I see. So when you're looking at the broader operation, what sort of things are you looking for? So even when looking at the broader operation, everything is details. Uh, We start from the beginning and go to the end. Also, sometimes we start from the end and go to the beginning, depending mm-hmm. on the scheduling. We're looking to make sure that everything is being done and being done up to the standard that Rav Heidemann has taught us and has shown us that we should be makbid on. There are varying standards when it comes to the different uh, aspects of, of the processing of meat. And everybody has their own definition of where it should be. We're pretty much looking for a system that's in place that ensures a consistent uh, product that's coming out that's of a high standard and that the people that are in charge of the facility, whether that's the Rav Amachshir, whether that's the Rosh Sevet, have a strong control of what's going on. 
Okay, so that's more of a broader view. So let's try to get a little bit more detail and detail oriented here. I know we probably can't cover the entire gamut of the entire range of this issue, but I think we spoke already a little bit about shchita. Just um, I think it's a little interesting, at least to me, the different ways they have of holding the behemoth for shchita for big behemoths. Uh, so I know at Truth the there's a special hydraulic lift that Rav Heinemann designed to hold the the cows in place. What other sorts of things have you seen in your journeys? So that style of machine is has become very commonplace now. Uh, what controls it, whether whether it's uh, hydraulics or electronics or or varying other techniques, vary. However, that is the most common way of situating the behemoth during the shechita process. Uh, some of them, depending on the facility, uh, try to accomplish shechita munachas, so they actually are in a rollover box. That that means just, I think I've seen a video of this, it's a giant canister that fits two cows at a time and just rolls them upside right, down. So you, have double, you have double barrels and you have single barrels that, you know, you could have one or two behemoths going in at a time. And uh, basically, yeah, exactly like you described, it's it, it's rolled over gently on its side. The behemoth does not feel any any pain or uh, discomfort. It's just, at least that's what the experts tell us. Uh, it's slowly rotated over onto uh, its back. Uh, once the, the the neck is facing upwards, the sheikh is able to approach it and uh, cut downwards, as opposed to what we were discussing earlier, is where the sheikh is cutting in an upwards motion, uh, over here they get to cut in a downwards mo- motion, and after which the behemoth is released from the from the device. The device is rotated over again, and you rinse and repeat. Rinse and repeat. Okay. The, so rinse, the rinse is literal. You're right. I, I understand. Uh, hose it down. So... Um, is there any advantage to that? Is it harder, easier, better, worse? So there are definitely um, many bottom that feel that shechitu menachas is more lechatchila, although that's not the view accepted by everybody. Uh, many feel that shechitu uh, medes is just as acceptable. However, if you if you think about it, just from a practical sense, tonight. When you you're cutting your your challah, or whenever you record this, mm-hmm. uh, next time you're cutting something, um, take your take your loaf of bread or your your challah or your cake, and hold it in one hand and try cutting upwards. You know you do it enough times and you could do it you could do it very well. Um, perhaps even as naturally as when you're cutting downwards onto a table or a cutting board. However, there is definitely a difference when cutting upwards. And again, after a certain amount of practice, it, it becomes second nature and is perhaps just as easy to accomplish as when you're cutting downwards. But there is definitely a difference between the two. When you're cutting downwards, you're, you you certainly seem to have more control than when cutting upwards. Mm-hmm. But shchito medis is more typical overall. Shchito medis is more commonplace, and uh, it is it is accepted kamat by everybody. Yes. Okay. Um, so after the shechita, you said along with the shechita, uh, they cut the veins to bleed out the behema, and uh, then it usually gets hooked onto a, uh, an assembly line of some sort, right? They they move the behema down the line, they remove the skin, and 
what else? What happens next? So as they're doing the hafshata, as they're taking off the arm, one of the things you have to keep an eye out for is that they don't have any electrical stimulation that's used to soften up the meat and to avoid any breakage when they remove the R off of the behemoth. After which, once that's done, they bring it to the gutter, who's going to remove the Evarim Hapanimi. He's going to work on the Evarim Eco, the, the stomachs, and the Evarim that are separated by the tarpash in the back of the animal. What's a tarpash? Pardon my uh, ignorance. The tarpash is the diaphragm that separates the the lungs and heart from the rest of the Evarim that are in the that are towards the back of the behema, uh, starting with the liver and moving backwards towards the the, the stomachs and um, the sanyadivi and so on. And uh, they take out the stomachs and those avarim and they leave the tarpush intact, they leave the diaphragm intact, at which point the boidic approaches the behemo and he makes two slits on either side of the tarpush and he makes a bedikis prim by inserting his hand into the lung area and making an internal inspection, checking each one of the lobes of the of the rea to make sure that uh, there are no adhesions. And if there are any adhesions, he'll make note of them to be able to check bedikas uh, chutz once the once the ray is removed from the animal. I just want to make sure I have these terms perfectly clear. So let's go back a step. So what happens is a gutter comes, he opens the animal, and he removes the the intestines and stomachs. And then, and then the boidic goes and does a bedikas pneum. A bedikas pneum means he checks how the lungs are connected to the diaphragm and checks for adhesions before the lungs are removed from the animal? Correct. In the thoracic cavity, he, he puts his hand inside and does a uh, hands-on inspection of all areas of the lung uh, before it is removed. Okay, and then he removes the lung. So bedikas pnim, bedikas chutz means where the lung is when you're doing this check. Correct. Before before they do anything in the thoracic cavity, such as uh, opening up the, the brisket bone or anything else that they need to do, the boidik approaches it and does this process of bedikas pnim. All right. And then, so what's the bedikas chutz? Um, bedikas chutz the Baidik is going to review any irregularities that he felt when he made Badikas Panim, and he will look for further irregularities, such as uh, any color changes in the Raya, which are uncommon, but that would make a would, would make a psul in the in the Raya. Um, see if he missed anything uh, that he did not feel on Badikas Panim. And he would also go about removing any small little rear loch, any rearim, any sirchas that he felt on Badikas Panim or found on Badikas Chutz. Uh, he would carefully remove those rather skilled process, which is one of the harder things to learn when learning Badikas. And uh, he would then check those by filling up the rail with, 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 uh, with uh, air. There's a, there's a cone, cone by his station that he puts into onto the lung, attaches everything up, inflates it, and then uh, checks with water to make sure that the area that he took off uh, the adhesion from did not create a hole in the lung and that the lung is still fully intact. And that then, depending on the size of 
the adhesion uh, would determine whether or not that behemoth would be considered uh, kosher or gla kosher or base yosef. Okay. Um, why is the bedikas pnim necessary if you're going to do a more intense bedikas chutz anyway? Or is that totally an ignorant question? No, it's a good question. I mean, the, the simple answer is that if you've ever seen them take the lung out of the thoracic cavity, uh, there's quite a bit of maneuvering that has to happen. Depending on who's removing it, some of them are more skilled than others, and they uh, there's concern that they can knock off uh, sirchas or, or rerim when they are doing this this process of removing it from from behema. So like this, you go ahead, you make your bedikas pinim. If you felt something, so okay, so you mark it down. You knew that you, you know that it's on the meshucha kichets. Each each adam, each raya has various lobes, and uh, each one has a name. And we use a card that the Baidik Pnim marked with, with, with a pen and puts a, a marking of, of sorts on the card that denotes where he felt something. Not always, not always is it the same uh, Baidik that does the Badikas Pnim as, and the Badikas Chod. So this is their way of communicating by a picture card and a Daimash Shmiya And when the Baidik Pnim puts it all down on the card, that allows the Baidichutz to know that something was there. So even if he can't find it uh, on Badikis Chutz, he knows that there was something there that he has to look extra hard for. And if he can't find it, then he has to, you know, check that entire area by inflating it and using water to make sure that there are no no tiny little holes that were created right. in the process. Also, as I think about it, also a lot of behemoths are determined to be treif in the bedikas pnim without even doing a bedikas chutz, right? That is correct. There's so, a fair amount of, of behemoths that uh, the bedik pnim will be able to tell right away that this sircha is too big or there are way too many sirchas or or there, there's no way that they're going to have time to work on something like this. or that, And he will on his own while standing up at the Badikas Pnim, choose to just make a uh, make a behemoth not kosher and not even bother sending it down to the Badik Chutz. The Badik Pnim touches, essentially touches every animal, aside from those animals that uh, were marked as novellas by Shechita, which is, you know, it happens, but it's not that many of them. And uh, the Badik Chutz only gets those behemoths that the Badik Pnim has determined that there's a fair chance of being able to make them kosher. Okay, excellent. So after the badika of the lungs, is there anything else that gets checked as far as the insides of the behema? So at some point, whether it's before badika's pnim or after badika's pnim, the basicosis, which is one of the stomachs, gets looked at just takes a couple of seconds to to look over to make sure that there are no sirchas on it. It's it's not it's not very common, but it's not uncommon for there to be a nail or other piece of metal lodged in the basic osas. And um, if that happens, typically there will be a, a sircha or some telltale sign on the outside of it. And uh, depending on the slaughterhouse, they will either just pass on, on that behemoth, meaning they will not try to make that behemoth kosher, or they'll open up 
the basic crisis and look to see what is causing the problem, uh, whether whether it's something that makes it a trefa or not. Okay, is that's, anything- the, that's the most that, those the the pedigasareya as well as the basicosis are the the two main trefas that are looked for in our slaughterhouses. Okay, you make it sound like there's something else that's looked for in other slaughterhouses. So in South America, they have they have a problem uh, that's not uncommon that the behemoths have uh, the other st- one of the other stomachs. Um, end up with uh, varying uh, various issues due to uh, the feed that they that they have over there, and um, they check they check those as well. Uh, over there, they have a mashkiach that checks each one because that's that's uh, rather uh, depending on where in the country you are, that could be rather common, and uh, th- those are inspected very closely. Uh, however, in in uh, North America, that's not a problem that we that we deal with. Uh, our behemoths don't have that issue. Okay. Um, just incidentally, the basicosis is called that because when you cut it open, it looks like a. Can you describe that? A bunch of a bunch of, a bunch of cups or a honeycomb. A honeycomb, right? Thank you. That's what I was looking for. Okay. So now we. So now the behema went through Shrita, went through Badika, so now it's kosher, it's glat kosher, or Beis Yosef, or plain kosher, or whatever it is, right? What have you. So then what happens? So at that point, uh, Mashkiach will confer with the Baidik Chutz, to, and once the Baidik Chutz determines what is kosher and what is glat kosher and what is Beis Yosef, Mashkiach will go and start to mark up uh, the varying uh, parts of the behema, whether it's the carcass itself or the tongues, the cheeks, the tails, maybe the sweetbreads, depending on where you know where which slaughterhouse you're at, and he will make sure to put uh, proper samani kashras on it because in the slaughterhouses in North America they leave the animals chilling in a cooler overnight, uh, sometimes two nights before it moves on to the nicker process, the nicker and the malicha. Uh, so we need to make sure that we have two solid simonim that are on each behema to make sure that there's no is- issue of bashash and salam and ayin. And every slaughterhouse has its technique, whether it's uh, plumbas that are used, uh, that are attached to the meat, or zip ties uh, that are attached to the meat that are specially printed with uh, the hechsher's stamp on it. And once those are once those are attached to the behemoth, the behemoth moves into the cooler, and uh, they also carve directly. They also carve simanim directly into the behemoth. And the other slaughterhouse, they can go ahead and they 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 uh, will carve the day of the week. For Monday, it's a base. For Tuesday, it's a gimel, and so on and so forth. And make a hot cut. That hot cut is easily recognizable as a hot cut because it doesn't have. There isn't much time. Uh, for the behemoth to get that hot cut. You'll, if you ever look at it, you'll see that uh, it opens up, it spreads open, and that's how you can tell the difference between a hot cut and a cold cut. If that is made, you know, once the behemoth has gone into the cooler and started to chill, the if somebody tried to imitate that cut, you would be able to tell that it was done once the meat was chilled, and it does not, it does not have that spread out, open, uh, widening that happens when it's done while it's hot, and that is one of the simonim that is often used to tell that that it's a kosher piece of meat. Mm-hmm. Oh, so it's chilled for a couple of days, 
Let's move on to the Nikor Amalicha process. If you still have, do you still have Kayach? Sure. Okay, so let's move on to, uh, to Nikor. What's Nikor? Nikor is the removal of the various fats that we do not eat and blood. When we say fats that we do not eat, some of it is chelev, some of it is yainik mena chelev. Today's day and age, there are so many different uh, minhagim that are out there as far as what is and what isn't acceptable. Uh, we try to cover them all, and I think we do a fairly good job at that. And uh, we remove uh, pretty much anything and pretty much we remove anything that um, the various communities and kahilas around the world would want to have removed. Of these fats and veins and Correct. other things. Right. So is there a noticeable difference between um, the forbidden fat and the permitted fat, the chalab and the shuman? There are some telltale signs that can be uh, used However, as as the Shulchan Aruch says, these are things that have to be uh, shown and can't can't be taught without seeing. So I'm going to follow that mahalach of the Shulchan Aruch and uh, mm-hmm. not get involved in all the minor details of what is and what is not considered the chelav versus shuman okay. on a on a podcast. <laughs> Fair enough. Did you say that deveining was also part of the process? Correct. So the dam has to be addressed as well at this time. And we take out the varying veins that are still, at this point, still inside the behema. And uh, there are different menhagim as far as whether the veins just have to be cut or they have to be removed. For Ashkenazim, where we have the more machmer position and we remove, um, we have a messiah in which veins have to be removed. And uh, a butcher or a menaker does not necessarily have to be a yid that's doing this process, just a Yehudi, a yid, a menaker, is what he's called, is uh, the mashkiach that reviews this process before it moves on to the next step. And it's skill, the, the, the varying veins and fats are skillfully removed without damaging the meat, hopefully. And once the veins are removed, it's ready to move on to the next uh, step. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so the menaker's job over there is just generally just to oversee the work that's being done by these skilled employees. So it all dep- it all depends on on the facility and what they have set up. Uh, we have no opposition to a menaker actually doing the work. Uh, however, practically speaking in most larger operations, you'll have very uh, you know say 6 7 or 27 butchers working and a monocker or two or three checking over what they're doing. It's not always so practical to have the monocker actually do the knicker. More often than not, he's the one who's reviewing each piece as it goes past him. He handles each piece and checks each section to make sure that it was removed. So you said a, a moment ago that, that this often happens up to two days after the shrita. Is it easier to do when it's cold? Why, is the, why, why the delay? Hot meat is very difficult to work with. Uh, it has more of a jelly-like consistency. And when you want to be precise and not destroy the meat that you're working with, it's easier once you have a firmer, more solid piece of meat to work with. That you, it allows you to be more precise and along better. Additionally, 
when meat has chance to chill, it brings out the marbleization. And when you want to get a, a good price for your meat, what the slaughterhouse does is they have a grader who works for the USDA and the grader comes in the morning and he looks at the ribeyes and uh, each ribeye goes past him and he gives it a grade. It could be choice, it could be upper choice prime. And uh, obviously the more, the, 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 the more prime that you get, the higher grading that you get, uh, the more value you will get when you sell your meat on the market. In order to get a good a good grading, you need to allow the, the animals' uh, carcasses to chill for at least a day, preferably two, to allow that bloom, to allow that 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 fat marbleization to come out. Mm-hmm, I see. But I thought malicha is supposed to be done within three days. The removing the blood is supposed to happen fairly quickly. So and it does, and it does. That is correct. So it, that seems to me like we have two opposing forces here. So let's say we make a shechita on Monday. Okay. Uh, those behemoths will chill from, from Monday to the whole day Tuesday. And then Wednesday morning, uh, early in the morning, yeah, there's a mashkiach and a menaker, many of them that wake up at 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the morning and are in the slaughterhouses uh, that early to make sure that there is no issue of the meat uh, being over, which means, as you were saying, that uh, you have 72 hours to, from the time of the shechita to get the meat soaked to avoid any issue of missing the 72-hour mark. Once you do that, the, the animal cannot be used for uh, regular kosher meat. It can only be broiled. Um, practically, there's no place for that on the market. Uh, nobody wants to take every piece of meat, every, every rib steak home and treat it like a piece of raw liver. Uh, requiring it to be broiled. So mm-hmm. it has to be done within the 72 hours. And the schedules are made such that uh, that happens. So, yeah, we definitely have to have a lot of akaras that type for those hardworking mashgichim and akram that wake up extremely early in the morning so that we can eat our our roasts and our rib steaks. Mm-hmm. So tell me about the malicha process. So after the menaker checks over each piece and fixes up what, if there's anything that needs to be fixed up. It, the meat then goes into a, the water bath, which depending on the facility, could either be an automated line or it could be a manual process. It stays there for the, approximately, again, every slaughterhouse has its own, its own process, but it stays there for approximately a half an hour and it has to be at least a half an hour. And that is timed, and those numbers are controlled by the mashgichim. So whether it's a manual process or it's a automatic process, it stays in the water. And after that, it comes out of the water, and it has a couple of uh, moments to dry off a little bit. Because if you put salt on it before it has a few moments to dry off, the salt just dissolves on the surface of the meat, and that's not what we're looking for. It then reaches a mashgiach who usually has a few workers from the slaughterhouse with him, and they salt every square centimeter of the meat, and that includes uh, any any holes that were made in the, the deveining process and the knicker process. This goes on all sides, top, bottom, and, and anywhere else where there's any surface area that's exposed. Then either gets stacked up or hung up on a 
on a hook on a pre-made hole and it sits either in a wagon with many holes that would allow the blood to drain during this process or as i said on a hook for an hour and once that hour is complete again these are all timings that are controlled by the mashkiach uh, it is then it then goes through the hadacha process the salt is banged off or rinsed off and then dipped into water tanks and typically they're using three water tanks that the that the meat goes into and uh, once that's happening the meat is given a certain period of time to dry off depending on the slaughterhouse it could be overnight other slaughterhouses pack it while it's still while it's still wet and that gets into a vacuum bag there's another mashkiach who is supervising the putting on of the simonic kashras onto each vacuum packed bag of meat and the sealing of the boxes to make sure that when it arrives at your local butcher store, it has proper Samari kashras that tell us that everything from the shechita all the way down to the packaging has been done. Kedasu Kedin. So uh, they're not putting plumbas into the actual behemoth anymore? So they are putting plumbas on the kill floor for the internal Samanim in the slaughterhouse. They will put plumbas onto the behemoths, but that's not something that you'll generally see by the time it reaches the, the retail customer, or even the butcher store. Even the butcher, because now everything's vacuum-packed. Typically, from what I understand, this this was definitely not always the case, but most shechitas in the United States now are a complete factory. By the time they send it to the butcher, it's ready to cook and eat. There are one or two places that don't do malich themselves still, right? We have a couple of places that receive what's called hanging meat, from the slaughterhouses. We have one of the big ones are here in Brooklyn. It's a wholesale processor, and he gets meat from various slaughterhouses. He gets it within the three days of it being shechted, and he does the nicker and malicha process in-house and butchers it to various cuts, whether it's wholesale or retail cuts, and then ships it out. Once it's once it's been kashered, trabered and kashered, he ships it out to butchers and some retail customers as well. Okay. And does anybody in the United States do hindquarters right now? There are different companies that do small amounts of achurayim. Uh, it's not something that is generally done, but if somebody looks hard enough, they can find different sources of kosher, even glock kosher, hindquarter meats available to them. And the reason it's not usually done is simply financial feasibility, or are there more cautious concerns with Acharayim? Oh, many years ago, before you and I were born, the American kosher market stopped using the Acharayim, or at least most parts of the Acharayim, because we do use certain parts of the Acharayim. We use tails, we use livers, we use from the tarpush, the, the, the skirt steaks and the hanger steaks. So there are definitely there are definitely some parts of the animal that we use that are from the hindquarters, but the the actual hindquarters, the kosher market walked away from using, and that was essentially, as you said, due to uh, financial concerns. The amount of effort that needs to be put into trabering a hindquarter is rather excessive and is not financially feasible in most cases. 
as of late, as as the foodie uh, scenes has, have have erupted, there's been more of a demand for uh, achorayim. What are the names of the cuts? What are the names of the cuts in the achorayim? There there are dozens of different names for the different cuts. The most famous is the filet mignon, followed by the New York strip. Uh, when they're together, they make up a T-bone steak, and um, that is a very popular steak that is eaten in. Uh, the high-end, not kosher uh, steakhouses throughout the world. Mm-hmm. So these sort of things, now the Jewish foodies want to eat them too. The Jewish foodies want to eat them too, so they've become specialty items that certain smaller boutique companies have gone and decided to try to make available on the market. So here's one thing I wanted to ask you. Growing up, I had some friends from uh, a Vizhnitzer family in my neighborhood, etc. And they were marked to only eat certain shechitas. And uh, there's something called chesidosh shechita. What is that? So in all fairness, to get the right answer to that, you would have to ask somebody who is chesidosh, which is not me. Uh, however, I've seen varying different uh, standards when it comes to those hachshirim that uh, make the claim of chesidosh shechita. Some of it is in writing, and some of it is not. Essentially, they want chassidim. How they define what chassid is depends on the definition of that particular hashkoch. Some of them want people who never voted in Israeli elections. That means if you have uh, a ger chassid that uh, lives in Eretz Yisrael and voted in the Bechiris over there, that person who's a very Ehrlicha, upstanding uh, Torah Yid, uh, who voted in the Israeli elections per his rebel, uh, would not be an acceptable shaykhit for uh, many chassid uh, Other hachshirim have said, well, as long as you don't trim your beard, you're considered chassidish, even if you're otherwise not chassidish or don't affiliate yourself with chassidish, chassidus. Others have said, well, you have to wear a gartel, you know. Others have said that you have to wear a, a long coat. They really have a very wide definition of what it is. Uh, essentially, essentially, they're looking for some sort of... Outward sign. Outward sign of somebody being a chassidish yid. Uh, and practically, that means that uh, Talmidim of the the Mir, of BMG, of other Litvish yeshivas, we would not be considered acceptable shachtim uh, for the shchitas. So when you see a a, a Litvish younger man who decides that he wants to be makpen a shchita, and uh, if you notice, none of the things that I said pertain to the actual shechita or bedika or nikah process. <laughs> it was all, as you so perfectly uh, put it, outward was about outward signs of uh, your chesidish standing. Uh, so a Talmud of, of the Litvish yeshivas uh, would be excluded from working as a shaykhit. So if somebody says, I want chesidish shechita, he's not saying I want a better chalif. He's not saying I want a shaykhit that's a bigger year shemayim because he's excluding himself. He's excluding his chavrusa. He's excluding his 
his uh, the guy on the bench next next to him and and, and the row over from him. Uh, so I mean, just to be fair, the I, I imagine. When, when I was speaking to Heinemann about this, he said that the number one qualification he needs in a shaykhit is Yerushalayim, right? As per, as per the Shulchan Aruch, right? As per the Shulchan Aruch. That's, that's, that's a fairly uh, good starting point, I would say. Right. And not, that the, not, not that Rav Heinemann needs me to second him or the Shulchan Aruch needs me to second. Right. But. Um, and we discussed that it's not the simplest thing to determine who exactly is a Yerushalayim. And it does depend on outward signs. So I imagine that these Hasidic Shechitas are putting this out because this is their baseline for Yerushalayim. Whatever it may be, the coat, the beard, the gartel, the vote. Perhaps, but uh, perhaps you're making a valid point. But it's just interesting to note that when you have uh, many Erel Chabonei Torah, who Litvish Chabonei Torah, who seem to say that they want to eat Hasidic Shechita, and they clearly must think that it has something to do with halacha, and it's really it all it has to do with is excluding people just like them, people that they want to be chavrusas with, people that they want to be mashadich with, people that they want their children to uh, be friends with, and all that practically is doing is excluding all those people from being a, a shaykhet for those shaykhetas that they... Uh, want to use. So it's just interesting. Okay, well, thank you very much for giving me so much of your time. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Kosher Conversation, a Star K Media production. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not tell a friend? They might like it too. If you have any questions about the podcast, topics discussed, or topics you'd like to hear discussed, shoot us an email at podcast at star-k.org. Hope to hear from you.